I don't know about you, but those pink bulletins make me want to slap somebody. <laughs> I was thinking about the, the clothing swap. There's the old story of Moses with the children of Israel in the wilderness. And Moses came in one day and said, guys, just with the men, he said, guys, good news. I said, what is it? He said, uh, we're going to change of underwear today. I said, but there's some bad news. What's the bad news? Aaron, you swap with Joshua. <laughs> just, I, just, I don't know why I thought of that. I don't know. I don't think it was the Lord, but you know, you never know. You never, you never know. You just test the spirits. <laughs> okay, better read the Bible. Okay. You know, being alive is a wonderful gift. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a gift that comes with an expiration date, but it's a wonderful gift. And the resurrection shows us that we're studying after we leave, you know, we've gone through the season of Lent, now we're in Eastertide, it's the season where the church talks about what does it mean now that he's alive. And resurrection speaks to us in a very significant way because it shows us there's something beyond this world. And uh, it mitigates the fear of death. And it opens the imagination in some ways that maybe you're not used to thinking of. And so we want to touch in a story, a snippet out of the life of Jesus after he had raised, been raised from the dead. If you recall, Jesus was alive on the earth after his death. He rose again from the dead and he was alive for 40 days on the earth. And he would appear to the apostles at different times during that season, teaching them, talking with them and demonstrating to them what a resurrected life looked like. And so we pick up the story in John chapter 20. This is one of the pericopes. This is one of the little snippet stories of this kind of activity that's going on. And so we read in John 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that first day, I'm going to read the text and complete, and then we'll back up into it. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, they're a little freaked out. Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. This is one of the reasons we say grace and peace to each other. Peace be with you. And he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said it, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. He responds, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where those nails were, and unless I put my hand in his side, I'm just, I'm not buying into this. I'm not going to believe this. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, and reach out and put your hand into my side. Stop doubting. Believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you believe. But blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have believed. That's an allusion to you, right? Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples during this time, 
which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It makes a difference trusting in Jesus, the risen one. Now, there's several directions that this test, text takes us in a little bit different direction, but we want to pick up on a couple of them, explore them a little. Let's go back to our first verse in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, this is significant because Jesus shows his resurrected self to these people on the first day of the week. Why is that significant? Because the big day for the Jews was always what? Sabbath. Sabbath was the last day of the week. And so here Jesus is appearing on the first day of the week. Now you have to remember that these guys were all Jews. Christianity was a subculture within the Jewish milieu. It wasn't a separated thing until much later. But, but what's happening here is by Jesus emphasizing Sunday versus Saturday, it began to influence the whole Christian trajectory where we began to realize that the first day of the week represented the new creation. It was a new start. See, that first creation where God created everything and we read the narrative about these days that God did different things. We don't know if they're little days, whatever they were. They were just these times that God did this, a sequence of events. And God says, it's good, it's good. And then in the last day after he creates everything, it says God rested and it was very good. We find out though that that first creation was sullied. We find out that it was corrupted. And by the time we get into the New Testament, Paul makes the statement that this is a present, not good world, but a present evil age. Because somehow sin had sullied the whole context in which creation. In fact, the scripture says creation groans as a result of what happened in sin. So what happens when Jesus goes to the passion of the cross, dies, buries, and then is resurrected from the dead. It's as if God recapitulates creation. In other words, he redoes it. You remember the first garden, there was a tree. The first garden, there was a serpent. Well, we read last time, a couple weeks ago, we read about the cross scene when Jesus is hanging on the cross. The scripture says in John that it was in a garden. The cross was a tree. And Jesus, it said in John 3, became a serpent on the tree. So in what's happening is that in the cross event, he's recapitulating creation. He's picking up on what happened and retelling the story. And so when we start out in Christian thought, we're starting out in a new creation. All things have become new. Sunday has come, the first day of the week, and we're moving toward another Sabbath. The Sabbath we're moving towards and all things are brought together and God has completely restored all things when finally the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and there's a new heavens and a new earth. By the time that Sabbath happens, the scripture says that in that moment we experience something pretty phenomenal. It's called resurrection. Now here's the problem. We modern American evangelicals do not think much about, re, uh, about resurrection because we, don't, we, we tend to, without realizing, we bought into philosophies that emerged with Christian thought. And one of the grand philosophies of the West was put forth by a guy named uh, Plato who is representing Socrates, as best we can tell. And it was their thinking, Socrates' thinking or Plato's thinking, whichever one it was, they basically presented that this world is really kind of a dark, shadowy place that's not really clear. 
that what's really life is in, in the eternal place. That's where the, that there's where the forms, that's where the, the reality is. And all we're seeing down here is shadows. And if we could just get out of these bodies, these sacks, and actually be in eternity, that's where things are really real. And so that spills into Christian thought so that lots of evangelical modern Christians think the real thing, our goal, what we really want is to be with Jesus in heaven. That's where the grass is really green and flowers really smell good. And we get to play with Jesus on the playground. <laughs> but in Christian thought, it's not like that at all. In Christian thought, the hope of our lives is not going to eternity. In fact, as we read in Revelations about those that have gone before us, they're not up there dancing and playing and, and you know, playing on the playground with Jesus. They're actually before the throne of God crying out. And in Christian thought, death is like sleep more than it's like being more alive. Because the soul goes to God, to be sure. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the soul, apart from the body, isn't as alive as it can be. Because the senses are gone. And so it's kind of like sleep. So these, these souls that are before God's kingdom, before God's throne in Revelations, they're there crying, when? When, Lord? You know what they're asking when is? When's the resurrection? The hope of the Christian experience is Resurrection. Not going to be in some eternal place. It's us getting our new bodies. And the new body that we get is kind of like this body that we see. When Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so we read it here. You notice about Jesus. It says that, that he somehow can do things he wasn't doing before the resurrection happened. On the first evening, the first day of the week, the disciples were together. The doors were locked because they were afraid. But Jesus comes through the doors. He didn't knock. They didn't open the door. He somehow comes through the doors and uh, says to them, hey, dudes, peace be with you. And they're going, how'd you get in here? <laughs> right? Somehow this new body that Jesus had did some things that were really different. And, and we get the first glimpse of what a resurrection body can do. Uh, this is significant for us because Paul says in Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, because he's Lord, watch, he uses that power to transform our lowly body so that they will be like his glorious body. In other words, he's going to transform our bodies to look like he looked after he rose from the dead. That's one of the cool things about reading the post-resurrection stories is you get a glimpse of what your body's going to be able to do. I mean, somehow we see that he's immortal. He can't die. Somehow we see that he can manipulate physical matter. That somehow he could actually go through the door. What was that about? Way cool is what that was about. <laughs> right? I mean, we know, those of you that are scientists, you know that, that matter is made mostly of space. It's, it's that if you condense all real matter, it's, 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 it would be tiny compared to what you see here. But there's lots of space. Somehow Jesus can squeeze through the electrons. I mean, how cool is that? through things not only that he would all through that 40 days after the resurrection he would appear and disappear appear and disappear <laughs> 
It says in Luke 24 that he was walking with these guys on the road to Damascus, or road to Emmaus, and he gets to Emmaus and he's sitting down with them. And he takes the bread, and they were prevented, the scripture says, from recognizing him, recognizing him. And he took the bread, like the communion moment, and he breaks it. And the minute he breaks it, they looked at each other. Deja vu. <laughs> they recognized him. And the minute they recognized him, the scripture says, he disappeared. That's moving faster than flash. <laughs> I mean, what if? I mean, they, actually, this is superhero stuff. What if your bodies, what if our resurrection bodies have superhero qualities that we can do? <laughs> or go through things. How cool would that be? I, I'm thinking, how fun would it be to, if, if our bodies are anything like this seems to be, I'm thinking I'm going to go building jumping. <laughs> just for fun, just jump off the Sears Tower. Land lovely. Or just walk all the way to Europe underwater. <laughs> See, in fact, what I'd suggest to you, now think about this a minute. I'd suggest to you that the impulse of understanding the hope of a resurrection body and what that body will be able to do is one of the reasons that in our culture we have these things like uh, Star Trek or sci-fi, the notion of traveling through the universe, the idea of superheroes, that they can actually do stuff that, that can't be done. I, I think that part of that, the church has always said that when creative people create, that what they're doing is as they're thinking and as they're pondering, it's almost as if they lean up against eternity and there's a wall there and they're picking up on things on the other side. They may not be clear, it may just be bits and pieces like listening to somebody talking through a wall. You maybe catch a word or so, or maybe by the tone of the voice, you get that they're in a conversation or laughing or mad. You can pick up little pieces of it. And, and the church has always said historically that even the pagans leaning up against in reflection could pick up on stuff that's real, but they just didn't necessarily couch it right. That's the explanation of the magi, that the magi who are star worshipers who are, who are actually condemned in the Old Testament because of their worship of stars. And yet, in their star worshiping, they somehow picked up on that there was going to be a king in Israel. They somehow picked up on there would be a change in the world, and they actually went following the star to find Jesus. And, and the explanation from the church is, they were pagans, they were, they were doing wrong things, but still, even in the midst of the confusion, they were still picking up on something that was real. What if... When I watch Superman, or you watch Superman, or you watch all those different superheroes, and there's something in there that goes, oh, how cool is that? There's something in us that resonates. What if that's a rumor of a resurrected life? <laughs> I'm telling you, eternity future is not going to be like so many people have made it to be. See, we're so influenced by Plato and, Ar and, and uh, Socrates. You know, they thought eternal realm was that place where you went and, and, and the highest form of joy and the highest form of, of peace and, and absolute knowledge in that kind of system was that you would go into eternity and you would ponder. What are you doing? I found the good. That's what they did. That, that's how we get notions like when you die, you go to heaven. 
and you sort of worship forever. You're on clouds playing harps, just sort of otherworldly and reflective. But it's not going to be like that at all. What if eternity future, God's got some dreams? What if he created a universe because there's other stuff going on that we get to be part of? And we get to go by speed of thought and enter a story that's going on that's a different story than ours. We're part of their story. What if? So how do you know that's true? I don't. But in fact, Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2, however, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. All we do know is we're going to have new bodies that can do amazing things. I mean, and what will eternity future be like with an undying, matter-moving, resurrected, eat whatever you want without getting fat body? What is that going to be like that? <laughs> it's going to be sweet. <laughs> and, and see, this understanding that we actually are going to do something in eternity is so much. I mean, listen, God did not create work after humans fell into sin. It wasn't like we, you know, work came, you know, we sinned and God said, ah, you know, the Garden of Eden was a Copacabana, but now you've sinned. We're going to make you work. It wasn't like that at all. He did say because of fall that, that work would suck. But when he put him in the garden, he put him there to work it and to keep it. Work is part of our calling. That's why some of us love it, to do something productive. We're not going to go into eternity to sip on pina coladas. Virgin pina coladas. Some will drink virgin pina coladas. <laughs> Others of us. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> I think we're going to do something. This is why, listen, listen. I think this is why God wants us to live right in this world. I mean, if we live right, we make the right choices. I think it makes life better. There's no question about it. Choose a bunch of wrong things, life gets worse. Choose a bunch of right things, life gets better. But it isn't just about this life. God doesn't just think about this life. He's thinking about eternity future. And part of the decisions that we make day in and day out have to do not with what's going to happen here, partly, but what's going to happen there. Godliness is for this present life as well as the life to come. And so when we make choices, I think it impacts how we're going to look in eternity future. Let me give an example of that. Let me, let me read you 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is talking about this judgment seat of Christ that all of us will face one day when we face Jesus. And Paul says, he opens up the text in verse 10, by the grace of God given to me, I lay down a foundation as an expert builder, but someone else is building on it. See, the foundation, he says, is none other than Jesus Christ. The foundation for our lives is Jesus that's how we all start. But he says everyone builds on that. A person that builds on that foundation. See, this, the foundation is what gets, us, what gets us into heaven. It's what Jesus did. But we have to build on that. And how we build is talking about our works, our actions. They matter, not because they just make life better. They matter because when we do good works, it's like we're adding gold, he says, and silver and costly stones into our lives. Or we can be adding wood hay and straw. Those are things that have not much luminosity. Those are things that don't have much endurance. 
You, you work with wood long enough and it starts to wear out. Hay starts to wear out. Straw starts to wear out. Gold, when it hits the fire, gets even better. He's talking about this idea of eternal stuff that you do versus wasteful stuff that you do. And he says, every person's work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, means when Jesus comes, he will bring it to light and your works will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each person's work. This is an eternity. It's like our lives are set afire on some level and God's going to see what we did with our life, the works that we did, the things, the choices that we made, whether or not there'll be choices that'll make it through the fire, gold, silver, and precious stone, or works that will be devoured up or burned up. And he says, if a person's work survives, he'll receive a reward. Where? Here? No. In eternity. It will be burned up if it doesn't last last. If it's burned up, the person will suffer loss. He will be saved, the person will be saved, but only like by the skin of your teeth, right? Are you really hot in here? No? I must be having a hot flash. I am getting older. But it's better than dying young, you got to say that. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, he's talking about the resurrection. He says, there are also heavenly bodies, then there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon has another kind of splendor. The stars have another kind of splendor. Stars different from each other. They differ from each other in splendor, in luminosity. So it will be in the resurrection of the dead. When you raise from the dead, your life will have a certain luminosity. What is it based on? What we can best tell is it's based on what you do with your life. The whole reason we say yes to God in the micro choices of our lives through the day is not just to make this day good. It's not just to be a good institution. Whenever we take peace over fighting or love over prejudice, whenever we take hope over despair or kindness over selfish kind of abruptness, every time we are willing to suffer by saying no to the things we really want to do or yes to the things we don't want to do that God wants us to do, every time we go through that, what ends up happening is that somehow our lives begin to take on these kind of luminous beautiful stones and gold and silver that somehow when we get into eternity... It makes a difference. In fact, James said it this way. He said, blessed is the person who perseveres under trial. Why? Because you'll show you, when you've stood the test, you receive a crown of life that has been promised to those who love him. This is after you die or Jesus returns. We get crowns of life. What do crowns symbolize? Rule. Influence. Brightness. Authority. Some of us are going to go into eternity without much brightness. We'll be there. Because the foundation is the same, Jesus Christ. But some of you, when you and I walk in together, some of us are going to shine brighter than others simply because we actually took our life seriously. What you do today matters. How you make choices matters. And it matters not just for today. It matters for out eternity, throughout eternity. I think one of the reasons the scripture says when there's a new heavens and a new earth, that when we cross into that, that God will have to wipe away every tear is because I think some of us are going to be weeping that we never believed he, that we actually mattered. One of the hardest things in the world to do, even for people that 
preachers and people that, that, that do different things in culture. I mean, even Mother Teresa's of the world. If you read their, auto, their autobiographies or their biographies, you find out they struggled with the sense that they mattered. All of us do. We have an enemy to our soul. See, and the devil will convince you, the enemy of your soul will convince you, oh, you're just a, a mom. You're just a Starbucks barista. You're just a nurse. You're just a doctor. You're just a janitor. What, you, what do you, you don't matter. And if he can convince you you don't matter, you will not live in a way that matters. And you will have the foundation of Jesus Christ. You get to get into heaven. You get saved by the skin of your teeth. But you're going to be kind of dim. Enough sci-fi, back to our text. Jesus enters in. He opens with peace be with you in verse 20. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. See, this, this was Jesus appearing in a way that he had never done before. They felt safe. They knew he was alive. There was joy. There was a, joy is the expectation of good. And here's what's cool. If you follow Jesus, here's what you find out. If you can just fight to see him, in your days. If you can just fight to see him in the midst of even the most horrible circumstances, every time you see him, joy comes. And joy is the expectation of good in the midst of dread. You can be in the most horrible situation. It's not that you're trying to, a lot of times I used to pray, when I, early on I used to pray, when I felt bad, God, where are you? I want to feel you. I was after a feeling. Or there'd be times I'd have negative circumstances. God, change these circumstances because I wanted to see him, Right? But when I found out whether I feel it or don't feel it, or whether I see it or don't see it, if I can just, the circumstances change, if I can just get a bead on the fact that he's in my life, that he's in here with me, that he's a very present help in the time of trouble. We think if it's a time of trouble, he must not be here. But he said, I'm present in the time of trouble. He said, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you, that I'm with you. You don't have to fear any evil. I'm with you. We think if he was really with us, we wouldn't be in that valley. But it's when we embrace the fact that he's with us and we, we grab onto that and we say, you're with me, that all of a sudden joy comes. That's where the fight is. And then verse 21, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. See, remember Jesus told them that one of his primary roles was to show the Father to them. He was telling them here, I think, that one of their primary roles as, as the followers of Jesus was to show people around them what God was like because of their connection with Jesus, that somehow we could show the world what God was like. That, that we become somehow because we're connected with Jesus and our lives are open to him, that we actually become the body of Christ. That we become his presence. This is very reminiscent of Moses' role to Israel when he told Moses, the Lord said to Moses in, the, in Exodus 7, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. I think this is what Jesus meant for us, that we can actually be like God to others. And obviously, you can't pull this off on your own. That's why he says in the very next verse, and with that, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. The only way we can pull off being like God is not when we force ourselves and we try to live right and we try to be a good witness. It's, it's that we start connecting with God. You have to figure out how you connect with God. You have to figure out how in your heart you can open your life to him where you start seeing difference. When you connect with the Holy Spirit, the scripture says the fruit of that is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. If you're not very self-controlled, it's not God's mad at you. It's just obvious you haven't been connecting with the Holy Spirit. 
right? You hang more with the Holy Spirit, self-control comes out of you. You hang more with the Holy Spirit, love comes out of you. So if you look at your life and you're not very loving, you shouldn't say, oh, stupid, I'm not very loving. That's not what God wants. <laughs> he wants you to say, I'm not very loving, I'm stupid, agreed, but I need to be with you. Figure out how to connect with the Holy Spirit because the minute you connect with the Holy Spirit, you start to change in surprising ways. You'll shock yourself. And you realize this isn't me. Believe me, it's not me. It's my favorite story on this. <laughs> I was reading some years ago about this Catholic, it was a Lutheran charismatic prayer meeting. This was back in the 70s before some of you were born. And these wonderful prayer meetings were places where they'd come together and sing and give testimony and they'd worship God. You know, it was, it was kind of a fun thing and they'd share what was going on in their lives. And, and so uh, this Lutheran pastor, I'm reading his book, the Lutheran pastor is fairly well known, traveled a lot. And he would go to the Lutheran in his own church. It was a Lutheran uh, charismatic prayer meeting in his church. He would only be able to show up about once a month, maybe even a little, little less than that. And so he talked about how he went downstairs in the basement, the church basement. There's this charismatic prayer meeting going on about 250 people. He's sitting in the back, and he notices this guy who's just not connecting with it at all. He's kind of just <laughs> looking around. And, and so after the service time, he went to this guy, and he said, hey, how are you doing? Introduce himself. He said, uh, how do you like this? He goes, not very much. He said, why do you come? My wife makes me come. He said, well, what don't you like about it? He said, it's all about hugging. He said, everybody's hugging each other. And I, I don't like people. He said, no, 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 men hugging men. Something not right about that. I mean, that's what he's saying, right? So, so the, the, the pastor's kind of laughing with him, you know, and thinking he's cute. And uh, uh, he, so the pastor said, hey, how would you like to try a little experiment? And the guy said, sure. He said, he said uh, how would you like to see if God will love people through you? Kind of caught his attention. He said, well, how do I do that? He said, does your wife have any worship tapes or anything, you know, music or something? He goes, that's all she has. And so he was the day of the cassette tape. And so he said, he, he said, tell me what you do. He said, take one of those cassette tapes, and every time you go to work, plug that thing in. And as the worship tape's going on, he said, just tell the Lord, Lord, I don't like people. But I'm okay if you love them through me. Would you please, I give you the right to love people through me. He said, just keep doing that. Just watch what God does. He said, all right. So he goes, the, the guy is gone. The pastor's gone for several weeks. He comes back, and he's coming down the stairs. One of those guys, about six weeks later, coming down the stairs to the bottom, the basement of the Lutheran church. And down on the bottom, there's this guy hugging everybody that's coming in, right? So he goes down there, and the guy hugs him, and he goes, do you know me? You recognize me? And he goes, no. Oh, yeah. He said, what happened to you? He said, oh, I'll tell you what. He said, I did just what you said. Took one of those tapes, plugged into the thing. Every time I went to work, I kept saying, Lord, you know, I don't like people. But if you want to love them through me, I'm okay with that. Go ahead and love them through me. He said, all of a sudden, he said, just a couple weeks, something started changing. I'm being nice to people. He said, I'm up here. I'm hugging everybody. He said, don't get me wrong. I still don't like people. <laughs> I love that story because it's true. I double dog dare you. Move to the Holy Spirit. Say, God, be kind through me. Be like, when you pull at the end of a hard day at work and you put your car into pee, why don't you just stop. I dare you just to stop and say, God, I want to go in there and I want to kick the dog <laughs> because I've been kicked all day. See, sometimes we just aren't honest about where we're at. We think God will freak out like he doesn't know you. <laughs> like if you say, I want to kick the dog, he'll go, oh, myself. believe you said that <laughs> he knows what you are you little toad <laughs> but i dare you to 
until I get God. I want to kick the dog. I want to control the remote. I do not want to help anybody. I do not want to, I'm pretending like I don't have children. <laughs> but God, I'm open if you want to be loving through me and kind through me and care through me. I dare you to try that. And what you'll find out is anytime you open your life to the Holy Spirit, it's like he starts raising up, but it feels like you, but it's not you, it's God, but it's not just God, it's you, but it's not just you, it's God, it's God and you. And we bump into this text in Romans 8. It says, the spirit of him, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. It's the same resurrection power. It doesn't result in the new body yet, but it changes the soul. It changes the heart. It makes all things new inside. So even when you're a total sink. I've told God, God, I've just been in a bad mood. I'm in sin and I do not want to stop. I want to keep doing it. I want you to bless me in spite of my sin. I told God that. I told God, God, I've sinned, but I'm not interested in getting out. And what's weird is if you'll say, but I'm open to you making me want to want to get out. There are times you don't even want to get out. So you need to want to want to get out. I'm telling you, God will meet you there. This isn't about you. This isn't about you performing for the Lord and being a good Christian and keeping your attitudes right. No, all you'll be doing is just being a little religious something. This is about God. <laughs> okay. Verse 23, I got it in. Verse 23, if, this is a gnarly text. If you forgive any, this is Jesus. Hey, guys, if you forgive anyone his sins, they will be forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What do you do with that? I mean, it kind of sounds kind of like an Orthodox or Roman Catholic or something like that, that you've got, that somebody's got to forgive you your sins or you're not forgiven. It sounds like that. So we, you know, Protestants, evangelicals and stuff, we go, well, the, the Lord's, I mean, he said that, but that's not what he means. I mean, he means something like, you know, that we should preach the gospel. And if we don't preach the gospel, then people won't get before receive forgiveness, you know. That's what it means. But what's odd about us is that then on the other side, when we read a text like John, you all know this one, John 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And we all go, Yes! Jesus, we demand literalness. And if somebody dares to say that that's not, that somehow that's metaphorical or something, we say, no, no. We say, Jesus meant what he said. Don't mess with the word of God. <laughs> but when Jesus says something we don't agree with, uh, we think that's metaphorical. <laughs> Why? Because whether we like to admit it or not, we have canon within canon. There's certain books of the Bible you read and you don't read others. There's certain passages you read over and over and over again. There's other passages you don't even look at. They make you mad. So we just pick. We're like smorgasbord at first cafeteria. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He said that, but I don't agree with that. Must be something other than literal. See, who's right, you say? I mean, all these, who's right? What if everybody 
things right. What if Christianity isn't just a black and white photo of a moment? What if Christianity is a, a mosaic, a tapestry? And what if we need to listen to our Catholic brothers and our Orthodox brothers and our Lutheran brothers and our Methodist brothers? What do we need to listen to each other? Because we all have pieces of it that we won't be really together unless we listen to them. I think some of us need to deal more with confession. I mean, it's true that I think we can go to Jesus Christ and get confess our sins and he will forgive us. And to be perfectly honest with you, if you understand Catholic theology, you know that they believe that too. It's just that they also believe it's critical that you go, if you can, to another brother, to a priest, and confess your sins. Now, you say, why would they do that? I mean, here's texts like this. This is James, and James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. This is one of the, you know, he obviously didn't read Luther. (laughs) You know, interestingly, I don't know if you knew this, but the reformers like Luther and Calvin and some of those guys, they wanted to throw James out of the Bible. Confess your sins one to another. Pray for each other so you may be healed. What if it's that we confess our sins to God and he forgives us? But what if, what if just forgiveness isn't enough from God? What if, what if something happens that our souls are so wounded that it's only when we confess our sins to one another that there's something that heals us so that the sin penchant, the, 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 the way that we tend to do it, what if that never gets addressed? What if we'll stay in that cycle of sin unless we dare to confess to each other so that the cycle can be broken? I don't know the answer to that. Volleyball. All right. Last thing. Verse 24. Chapter 20. Now Thomas called Didymus. Not sure why he was called Didymus. Didymus. Thomas seems easier to me. Why John felt compelled to let us know this information seems rather obtuse to me. Thanks, Thomas. Or thanks, John. Didymus. <laughs> we'll probably get to heaven and say, hey, Didymus, don't call me that. I hated that when they called me that. <laughs> so maybe this was John's jab at Thomas Didymus. <laughs> hey, Didymus. <clears throat> now, Thomas, one of the 12 was not the disciples, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we, we, we've seen the Lord. And he said, unless I see that nail mark, put my finger in it, unless I put my hand in it, I'm not going to believe it. I don't think that, I think Thomas has got a bad rap here. I think people just say, he's doubting Thomas. I, I think what was really happening here is that Thomas was a pragmatist. And he was probably saying, guys, I know you're grieving, you're freaking out, but Jesus is dead. Let it, leave it alone. He would want us to go on. I think he was just trying to encourage them to kind of get control. They're freaking out. They're hiding. Stop it. He's gone. What are we going to do? I think that's what he was saying. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. And though those doors were locked, here comes comes Jesus. I love that. Peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, watch. Put your finger. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting. And believe. Now, here's what I, I don't know if you've ever done this, if you're ever trying to get into the minds of the people in the stories. But what do you think Thomas thought? I mean, he said that, but Jesus wasn't there. And he probably thought, how'd you know I said that? I mean, you weren't here. Who were you? 
See, one of the things Jesus was trying to do in those 40 days is he was trying to appear and disappear, and he knew everything so that they began to realize he's with us whether we see him or whether we don't. And what if that's true for you? What if some of you, the only time you feel God's really with you is when you're worshiping the Lord and there's a moment of flutter, and you think, oh, the presence of the Lord is here, and then when you leave, it's not here. What if he's always with you, whether you flutter or not? What if he's always in your life? What if, what if that's the reason we don't pray much is because we don't really believe he's here? I mean, what if spirituality is more about not being rude? Because if you really believe he's here with your two jelly-faced toddlers you're attending to and he's actually there, at some point in the day, you would think you'd go, hi. <laughs> but if you don't ever go, hi, it's because you don't really believe he's there. And if he's really there and you're just not paying attention to him, you're just flat rude. The Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he's what, that he's right there, enough that we diligently seek him. I mean, if you went home today and you found on your table, hi, Pastor Ed here, I'm hiding in your house. (laughs) You found that note, you've got a decision to make. Do I dial 911? Is this a joke? Or is he here? And if you thought I might be there, you'd start diligently seeking me. Kato! Right? <laughs> the young people didn't get that. That's right, those poor unfortunate souls. You'd be looking for me until you decided it was a joke. But if you really believed I was there, you'd keep looking for me until you find me. You know why we don't seek the Lord? We don't believe he's in our lives. We just don't. Why would he be? You're not Billy Graham. Right? You're just a dad, janitor, Starbucks barista. You're not whatever. You're just a student. Why would he be in your life? See, the biggest reason we have so little activity of God in our lives is because we just don't believe. But Jesus said, Thomas, stop doubting. And then he says, Thomas responds to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, blessed, because you have seen me, you believe. But blessed are the people who don't see me and they still believe. Blessed are you when you still believe he's there when you don't feel him. When you still believe he's there, when no circumstances are working out, blessed are you when you believe that he's there enough to seek him. That's where new life 